This is Solemn Literary Press. I'm your host, Riley Bounds, and this is a Solemn podcast where we discuss and examine the intersection of the modern renaissances in evangelical literature, philosophy, and spiritual formation. Today, I'm excited to have Doug Lindquist on the podcast. Douglas J. Lindquist is Associate Philosophy and Theology Editor of Solon Press. He graduated from New Hope Christian College with a BA in Ministry Leadership and from Talbot School of Theology with an MA in Philosophy. His academic writing has appeared in the Journal of Contemporary Theological Studies. Doug will be joining us for a series of interviews over the coming months on different topics. I'll add here that Doug is my nearest and dearest friend. Um, he's had a lot of input in Solom's direction since its beginning, and uh, without him, Solom wouldn't be what it is. So I love him to death, and I'm grateful he's part of this. More information will be given in the show notes, including a link to his bio on the Solom website. So Doug, welcome, and uh, thanks for being here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here. So, um, Doug, why don't you just uh, tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, namely, how did you become a Christian? Well, I was raised in a home, uh, a mixed family where my mom was a Christian and uh, my dad was not. I grew up attending church regularly my whole childhood. We were we were forced to me and my my sisters, um, and I really just didn't understand church. I, I thought that the people were, were nice, and I thought that they were really good muffins. Uh, and I liked that in Sunday school, there would be games where I could win prizes and win cool toys. Um, but other than that, I just didn't, I didn't really understand the, the point, especially as I got older. I, I never really understood why we were really there. I never understood what it was about. And my dad is more skeptically inclined and so when I was 13 years old, my dad convinced my mom to let me make up my own mind about Christianity and about church. And so I decided that I really just didn't, didn't see the value of it. And so I, I left the church at 13. And for all my teen years, I just, I really drifted further and further from anything to do with Jesus or Christianity or, or going to church. And my mom at the same time was getting much more passionate about those things. So she would, in my teen years, she would still try to occasionally get me to go and I would go to do her a favor or I would go if it was, it was Mother's Day or something like that. But aside from that, I just, I grew more skeptical. I, I grew frankly more, more hostile. I don't, I don't think I was mean to, to Christians per se, but I was more hostile to Christianity the older I got. And so I, I would try to argue the Christians that I knew out of their faith I would try to show them that it really had no foundation, that it had severe problems, especially when it came to the way that Christians thought about, uh, for example, uh, people who are homosexual. That was a big problem for me, even though I'm myself, I'm not, but that was just a big moral issue from my perspective. And I, I of course, would say things like religion is the, the source of most of the violence in the world. Religion is the source of most, most wars, uh, things that are, as a matter of fact, uh, not not really correct historically uh mm -hmm. certainly if, if you look at the 20th century alone you see more more deaths and more killings not in the name of, of religion 
but in the name of secular governments primarily. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I didn't know any of that. And I, I thought that I knew far more than I really did. I, I guess I was your typical teenager. <laughs> and so I just, I grew more sure of my my rejection of Christianity, but I really just didn't understand it, frankly. I, I really, I was quite ignorant. So as that progressed, uh, I, I got deeper into using drugs and alcohol, um, especially because I, from an early age, I struggled with depression and anxiety. So I, I gravitated to, to drugs and alcohol to cope with that. And so I just grew deeper into those things, uh, eventually became a drug dealer, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and uh, just really drifted. My, my mom and I just were, were drifting apart quite a bit as she grew more in her faith. But it wasn't until I was 21, after experiencing a lot of, a lot of um, tough things in life, uh, that I actually had an encounter where I, I overheard a Christian speaking on a radio and I heard the way that he was using evidence and, and reason and logic and argumentation, mm-hmm. as well as the way he just he took the questions that that doubters have seriously. And I was just completely, completely shocked. I'd never met a Christian like that. And so that put me on this this path of starting to research Christianity and philosophy as much as I could. Uh, just spending all my my waking moments doing that, I just got obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. And so simultaneously, I saw that Christianity was rational and was true, and that philosophy was uh, was an important help in understanding it. I didn't really know what philosophy was up to that point. I, I had always thought about the, the deeper questions of life, but I didn't know that there was an actual discipline that was completely devoted to those questions. And so when I was 21, I discovered both genuine Christianity from an intellectual perspective, as well as philosophy. And I just saw how, how helpful they were for each other. And so that's when I became, I became a Christian. There's a lot more I could say, obviously, but that's when I became a Christian and when I became interested in philosophy. And that eventually led me to, to pursue a master's degree at Biola University under William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland and others who are, who are great, Greg Gansel, David Horner. Uh, and so that's really my, my journey. And then he met me and that's, uh, that's where it all went downhill. But, uh, <laughs> um, no, that we, we did meet each other in the, um, in the MA program at Talbot and, uh, it's, uh, the rest is history. So, uh, so Doug, um, why don't you just tell us exactly what is philosophy and why do you think it matters? Yeah, it's a very important question. And it, it really is a, is a bit of a complicated question, but of course I'm gonna really try to just make it as, as um, readily accessible as possible because really philosophers love debating everything and they, they have a hard time, notoriously, they have a hard time defining almost anything. I mean, that's, it's because really philosophy really tries to define things in incredibly rigorous terms. And so ironically, it doesn't even have a universally accepted definition of itself. Um, among philosophers. So it, it's a little complicated, but for our purposes, there are at least three meanings for the word. One would just be kind of the way that people commonly use it, like my philosophy, your philosophy. And really by that, they just mean like my, my perspective on something or my take or my, my view on something. That's not really the way we're using the word. The way we're using the term has more to do with, with two other meanings. And the first meaning would be the etymology of the term itself, which goes back to the Greek word philosophia. Mm-hmm. And that just, it just means the love of wisdom. 
philosophy in the ancient world was particularly focused on wisdom and that that meant that primarily meant how to live well and so it, it had a very practical bent i mean it also focused on other things but that was one of the core aspects of it so that's one meaning that i think is helpful to talk about and then there's a there's another meaning which is philosophy back then it, it really was so connected to the way somebody actually lived now it's not that it's not at all connected to that but now the way it's taken on a different a little bit of a different meaning in that it's more of a specific academic discipline that somebody can actually specialize in at like university and even take on professionally as a career and get paid to do and mm-hmm. and that 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 understanding of it would focus on really the, the biggest questions in life that understanding would focus on questions of metaphysics, which is one of the most abstract aspects of philosophy. And, and it really tries to understand the nature of existence, the nature of reality, mm-hmm. um, particular things, substances, the nature of causation. What does it mean for one thing to be a cause and to produce an effect? The question of whether we have free will as human beings or not the subject of time and space. It covers a lot of these very heady mind expanding questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, there's going to be epistemology, which is another branch of it that focuses on, on knowledge and on justified belief. So that, that area wants to really understand what knowledge is. How do we, how do we have knowledge? One of the questions that is, that's debated in, in that area, or at least has been historically is whether we can know something without being certain of it. Mm. And this this is one this is one hang up that so many people have that I find when they when they talk about knowledge or they talk about philosophy is they they think that in order to really to really know we have to be utterly infallibly certain. Mm-hmm. And th- that's really just a mistake because th- there's so many things that we know and that we are rational to to take as knowledge even mm-hmm. though we can't, we can't prove them with certainty. We don't know them with certainty. Um, we may not even know that we know something and yet we, we still can know it um, because we can't be consciously aware of everything we know all the time. So um, a, a third branch would be logic and logic really tries to, it really tries to zero in on what are the appropriate principles of reasoning? How, how can we, properly come from a premise, a, a claim, a, sta- a statement, and from that, and actually multiple statements, how can we arrive at a, at a conclusion that we are rational to accept? And log- logic really tries to focus on, on that question. Another area would be ethics. This would be a fourth primary area of philosophy, and it concerns itself with questions of good and evil right and wrong, um, whether we have moral duties, and if so, are they, are they objective? Are they, are they real and binding, even if people disagree on them, um, even mm-hmm. if a culture, a culture differs on them? Those would be four of the biggest areas of philosophy as we're talking about it. So why should uh, lay people care about uh, philosophy? Isn't this more just uh, for the ivory tower crowd? Well, so, some would say that it's more for the ivory tower. Some some would really approach it, in, in my opinion, as if it is this, this just purely heady, 
highly abstract and intellectual activity. And I, I would want to say that, that that really isn't the best way to think of it as being only that. Because the truth is that everybody is a philosopher in, in, in a certain sense. Even if we don't consciously think of a lot of those questions that I, that I raised a moment ago, um, we all have to answer those questions by how we live. We all have to get out of bed every day. We all have to answer questions of what is my life really about? Um, what am I as a human being? What is the purpose of human existence? What's the point of being here? Um, is there a point? How, how do I know things? Um, does God exist? These are just the most burning and pressing questions that we can ever grapple with. And now somebody might say, well, look, I, I don't really, I don't care about that. Now, setting aside the fact that, that that's really problematic, everybody should care about this because the moment you reflect on these questions like life after death or uh, do miracles exist or is God real, the, the more you reflect on that, uh, I think if you do it sincerely, you, you, there's no way to avoid the significance of those questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, th there just are no other questions that come to that level of importance. And so then we have an option. The option is not so much, am I going to be a philosopher? The question is, am I, am I going to be a good one? Am I going to live thoughtfully? Am I going to live a life of ignorance, just kind of drifting along with the currents of, of culture? Or am I going to live an examined, thoughtful life? Mm -hmm. um, and I think just when you, when, you, when you look at it in those terms, I just don't think there's any way around seeing the importance of it. So late people absolutely should care about this. I understand that we're busy people, that people have families and children and spouses and uh, working full time and, and things like that. But it's, it's important as human beings to set aside some time to think about these questions and to even read up a little bit on these questions. We don't need to be experts. Um, but we do want to spend some time thinking about these things because just because of their, their unparalleled importance. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I mean, that, that shows the utility right there, doesn't it? There is utility in it. And I would even add that um, the more time we, we devote to these things, it changes us as people. A lot of times people will say when they hear that you're getting a degree in philosophy, they'll say, well, what's that going to do for you? What, what are you going to do with that? And really, that, that's, I understand that question, but really the, the more pressing question is, what, what, what is it going to do with me? Because mm -hmm. philosophy is something that's so much bigger than, than I am, and it, 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 the importance of it is so perennial that it, it's going to change me into a different kind of person. The more I focus on it, I'm going to be a more thoughtful, more self-aware, uh, frankly, more interesting person. I'm not just going to be concerned with just passing fads and and fashions of society, um, I'm, I'm going to be a, just a deeper person who has, frankly, more to say and, and more to offer in, in any sphere of life. So some would uh, object to all this and say, well, philosophers haven't arrived at uh, any conclusions, you know, over thousands of years of study. So why, why should we just uh, press on, you know, hoping that we can arrive at some answers? You know, uh, what, what, what would you respond to with that? Well, it, it certainly would be a mistake to think that we haven't arrived at conclusions. Um, it might be more accurate to say that 
uh, that many of the claims in philosophy are intensely debated by philosophers. Now, some of that, I actually think somewhat jokingly, that might just be because philosophers can often be just a little bit contentious personalities. Um, and, and frankly, academics in general, I think, are that way. I mean, I don't know of any field where, whether it's scientists or um, professors of literature or, or whatever, who don't just love spending their time showing how everyone else in their field is wrong mm -hmm. um, and how they, they have an angle on, on, on truth that no one else has. So it, it, certainly things are debated in philosophy, and in some ways that's part of the nature of it. Philosophy is, is more about a process of coming to, to your views than it is about just getting to the right views, although that, that's important too. But it, it's more, you know, there's that, that old um, saying of it's better to um, debate a matter without settling it than to settle a matter without debating it. And I, I think that's, that's really often true. It's not always true, of course, but there certainly has been progress with philosophy. Um, it may be just a, of a different nature than something like science, um, because it's it's dealing with with more the most fundamental questions. And th these questions, by their very nature, these are not something you just you go you go do a six month research project on and come away with some certain answer. I mean, for example, the question of the meaning of life. I mean, that's a different kind of question than. Um, you know, uh, what is an electron? Mm -hmm. um, those are just radically different kinds of concerns. And so by its very nature, this question is going to be open to more kinds of perspectives and interpretations because people are coming from such different backgrounds um, and have different priorities. So all that to say, just because there is debate and that there's some push and pull, it doesn't mean that, there, that nobody's right. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that there aren't, there aren't any reliable conclusions. Uh, do you think that Jesus was a philosopher? And if so, I mean, what was his philosophy anyway? Well, again, it's it's tricky to really nail down what we mean by these terms sometimes. Um, there have been very different kinds of philosophers in the history of, of philosophy. Some some are, are known almost exclusively for just sh uh, short, pithy aphorisms that are just wise sayings. Uh, some are, are like Aristotle are known for much more exhaustive, systematic, um, you know, book length treatments of different topics. Some philosophers, uh, don't, we don't have any writings of theirs like Socrates. We only know about Socrates teachings from other people, uh, Plato and I, I believe Xenophon. Um, and so there have been many different kinds of philosophers in, in history. And, and again, the ancient understanding was a bit different than the modern one, because the modern one is more about is some, when, when it asks the question, is somebody a philosopher? It, it means typically, are they a professor at some university? Do they get paid to teach philosophy? So make, you know, having made those distinctions, yeah, Jesus certainly didn't get paid to, to, to teach philosophy. He didn't write some systematic treaties on uh, the nature of being. So he wasn't a philosopher in that sense. But if, if we're looking at it in a bit more general, more broad sense, uh, in the sense in which really every human being is a philosopher because they have to grapple with those big questions, he would certainly be that. And he would even be more than that because while he didn't, he didn't explicitly work through, you know, uh, logical syllogisms or detailed, um, you know, metaphysical discussions, he, he, he shows an awareness of 
those kinds of, of issues. He shows an awareness of the importance of truth. He shows an, an awareness of the importance of, of knowledge and, and certainly of, of ethics. One of the most compelling aspects of Jesus' teaching is his, his ethical vision for human life. And that really is, is, is the biggest reason why he's had such an abiding influence in history, because the picture of life he gave and the way he answered the, the, the really significant questions of life were, were, were far and above better than certainly any other teacher that I've discovered, any other philosophical thinker. Mm-hmm. Um, just, to, just to give a, a couple examples, his picture of, of the good person, uh, because one of the most compelling questions is, is what is a good person? What, what does it actually look like to have good character? Um, and that's a question that, that any philosopher worth his salt needs to address, his or her, I should say. And Jesus' answer was so compelling and so beautiful and so different um, from really anyone else I've discovered that his teaching has left a legacy unlike anyone else. And so just to give kind of a rough snapshot of, of how he would answer the question, what is a good person? He would say things like, a good person is somebody who above all else loves God and loves other people. Mm-hmm. And the way he would have understood that would, would be somebody who not just loves them in terms of has affection for them, although that's certainly part of it, but really loving in the sense of giving people what they need, of willing the good of, of whoever it is that, that you encounter in your day-to-day life, mm-hmm. um, and really willing the best for people. So that is kind of his overall ethic is, is loving God, loving your neighbor, as he would put it. And then the way he cashes that out in terms of good character is like the good person is somebody who is increasingly becoming free of lust, who, who doesn't look at people in order to use them sexually, increasingly becoming free of, of anger. Um, it doesn't mean that anger is a sin necessarily, but anger is very often close to sin. Sin is often right next door to anger. And Jesus understood that. He, he was a profound uh, psychological mind, um, among many other things. And also, a good person is somebody who's becoming increasingly free of anxiety and worry, and who's becoming filled with joy and with peace, and really of a, of a sort that, that, can, that is so different from anything else seen in the world, um, that just makes Jesus stand out. And so th- that's just a, just a basic snapshot of, of why Jesus is so brilliant when it comes to his approach to, you could say, philosophy. Hmm. Um, so bound up with Christian philosophy is apologetics. Um, why don't you tell us exactly what apologetics is and uh, why we should practice it? Sure. Apologetics is it's really kind of an art and a skill that is done under the power and the influence of the Holy spirit that is really focused on giving an answer when people in the world around us, when they, when they notice that there's something different about us, when they notice that, for example, we, we have a piece that really is just not typical in the world, or we have a joy or we're able to forgive um, because Jesus had such an emphasis on forgiveness but there are these ethical teachings Jesus had that, that insofar as we follow them and, and to the degree that we're changed by the Holy Spirit into different kinds of people, 
the world around us will notice those changes. And it, in fact, it'll be puzzled by them. Um, sometimes it might even be angry by them. It might even say, why are you not doing the things we're, that we're doing? You know, we're all going out to party and get wasted. Why are you not doing that? Like, what do you think you're better? Uh, you know, that would just be one example um, of, of a, a different sort of life, a different sort of character that Jesus followers have that, that would provoke curiosity and would, would, would um, provoke questions from people. Mm-hmm. And given, the, given that foundation, apologetics then comes in and says, when that happens, we need to be ready. We need to be prepared to give an answer when people ask us, why are we different? Why are we not just going out and getting wasted like everyone else? Now, obviously, Christians can still struggle with anything that almost anything the world struggles with. And that's certainly part of, uh, I think, how God how God walks with us in our journeys. And so w- when we come to Christ, we certainly are not perfect and, and will never be perfect in this life. But that being said, there still is meant to be a, a significant uh, difference in our lives. And especially not primarily just comparing us to the world, but comparing us to the way we used to be um, is that, you know, the, the big change Jesus offers it like for me and for, for other believers is really just, I I'm just, I'm a different version. I'm hopefully I'm a better version of, of myself than I was when I came to Christ 12 years ago. And so when those changes are happening, the world around around us will will tend to notice and will ask us those questions. So apologetics just says we need to be ready with answers and with evidence and with arguments, not in the sense of fighting, but in the sense of just giving reasonable um, premises and claims that that lead to a a reasonable conclusion. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big part of apologetics. Now, certainly there can be times where there's a little bit more of of a, a strong debate element to it. Um, there can be times where um, there are just many different contexts so uh, of, of doing apologetics. But that would be kind of the basic idea. Sometimes we talk to brothers and sisters in Christ who, um, you know, they'll rebut and say, uh, well, you can't argue people into faith, you know. Uh, so that, that's a very common retort. Uh, what, what would you say to people like that? Those kind of claims always put me in an awkward position because my my immediate answer my, my immediate answer is that that's obviously false because here I am because for me apologetics was just central um, to my my coming to Christ it was just it was central for for multiple reasons one of the biggest was that it cleared away doubts that I'd had mm-hmm. um, it, it cleared away ignorances that I that I carried about Christianity. Um, and then it also just gave me positive reasons to think that Christianity really was especially compelling in the marketplace of ideas, that it really, it really does stand out um, for its, its historical uh, pedigree, but then also for its, its just intellectual, philosophical, um, uh, just credibility. I mean, it's just, it was just so much more cogent than any other system that I study, any other system of ideas, whether atheistic or other religions. So th- there just isn't really any way of getting around it. And we, we do see multiple cases in the scriptures. Uh, maybe we'll go into that on a, on a later uh, interview, but uh, multiple cases where the apostle Paul engages in, in apologetics. Uh, in, in, in Jude, uh, in the New Testament, it, it tells us to contend earnestly for the faith. 
th there are plenty of examples, Paul at the Areopagus, where um, the biblical figures use evidence and arguments, and the Holy Spirit uses uh, the apologetics that they, they do in order to win people over to, to Christ. And so we do see that done successfully in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that every time we do it, it it's going to be some kind of mechanistic result where you, if you just give evidence and, and arguments, people just kind of submit. I mean, that, that's not really how it works. The, the, the real purpose of apologetics is to help people who have sincere questions um, to, to come closer to Christ. And even if it doesn't mean they're going to accept Christ, anytime we can help clear the path by, by, um, by dealing with certain question and questions and challenges, we can, we can just move the dial of people's spiritual lives a little bit closer to Christianity. And all, all the while, we're respecting their own agency. We're not trying to force anything on them. We're, we're not trying to proselytize in some kind of inappropriate sense. Um, we're not trying to deceive or, or intellectually muscle people into the kingdom against their will. Um, we're trying to trust the Holy Spirit to use our preaching, to use our testimony, to use the scripture, um, to use uh, many different kinds of tools, really just to help people get a clear, honest look at Jesus in all of his beauty and in all, all the truth that he presents. I know that uh, I know some people will object to that and say that um, you know all we need is love and all we need is a gospel you know to share with people uh, that's worked for Billy Graham it's worked for you know hundreds and hundreds of years you know why do we need to change that now um, aren't we just like uh, doing something that's in vogue right now um, what, what, what would you just say to people who think that we don't need apologetics generally well, even Billy Graham is an interesting example because he himself said, even even after having such a fruitful life of, of ministry and of bringing so many people to um, faith in Christ with a very simple gospel message, which, which by the way, I don't want to denigrate at all. I think that a, a simple gospel message in many settings can, can go very far. But even he said that he, he one regret he had in his life or one thing he wished he could have done is spend more time in, in uh, college, getting formally trained in, in a lot of these deep kinds of things, because he, he really saw the value of the life of the mind. And honestly, that, that's a virtue that has been in many ways lost in the church today. So often today, non-Christians look at the church, they look at Christians, they look at Christian faith. Just to be, to be frank here, I don't mean to offend anyone, but they look at it as, as kind of stupid or silly or irrational, they, they often say things like, well, if that sort of thing works for you, and, it, and it's this kind of thing where it's like, they don't mean to necessarily be condescending, but it's like, yeah, if you're kind of like weak, or if you, if you need that as kind of a hobby, or if you want it like a nice warm blankie, you know, that where it just kind of comforts you, and it really has no connection to, to reality, or right. to anything that, that we would consider um, intellectually respectable beliefs that adults should have. But, you know, if it works for you and, and notice, by the way, they would never say that about things like mathematics. They would never say that about science. They would never say things like, well, you know, if the newspaper works for you, then, you know, you can believe it uh, mm -hmm. or or uh, anything of that sort. But they say it about religion because they see it as on the level of a hobby or just kind of a, a mere opinion. And a lot of that is because the church has abandoned its historic 
tools, it, it, its arsenal of how it engaged with the, the non-believing world. Mm-hmm. And the Apostle Paul, for example, defines spiritual warfare as um, the demolishing of strongholds, of, of arguments, of ideas, uh, battling them not with, with carnal weapons, not with physical weapons, because that's not the nature of our warfare as believers, but with, with spiritual, powerful arguments. Um, spiritual warfare is overwhelmingly um, uh, a matter of, of ideological conflict. And so that's, that's one reason why Christians are called to be engaged in the life of the mind. We're called to love the Lord with all of our being. And Jesus did even specifically say mind um, as well as every other part of our being. Mm-hmm. So those are some other reasons to take this seriously. But when it comes to the issue of, of thinking, well, if we just love people, if we just do good things for them, then, the, then they're going to come to Christ. Or even if we just, if we act loving and nice and we share the gospel, that, that may well work. That, that may well work for many people. But in our society, given the plausibility structure, which ju- plausibility structure just means the beliefs that a society is willing to consider as even plausible, which Christianity is now outside of that, that area. Christianity, for most people in America, um, especially for what are called the nuns, people who don't identify as any religion, and especially for younger folks like millennials, Christianity is not even something that's plausible. It's not even on their radar as something that could even possibly or plausibly be true. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important for us to really take up the resources God has given us. We have a 2000 year tradition of intellectual work and, and resources and arguments and evidence that we need to use in order to show people that Becoming a Christian is an intellectually viable option. It, it, you, we don't have to be. We don't have to leave our, our minds at the door. We don't mm-hmm. have to use our use our minds only when it comes to our career, or only when it comes to um, our music choices, or, or these other things. We can also bring our intelligence and our reason right into our faith and right into our, our love and worship of God. And so, God God can use many things to bring people to him. He can use love. He can use acts of service. He can use a simple gospel presentation. But in the scriptures and in for, for, for so much of church history, he also has used people giving rational, reasonable, smart arguments and evidences to show that Christianity is not only plausible, but actually true. Mm-hmm. So right. it's not. So my answer is it's not an it's not an either or. It, it, that would be a false dichotomy. The Holy Spirit uses apologetics. It, he doesn't just act in isolation or just with the gospel presentation or or a loving attitude. But more than that, I mean, can we even find philosophy in the Bible? Also, I mean, doesn't the Bible warn against practicing philosophy? I think Paul wrote on that, didn't he? Uh, just yeah. What would you say to that? There is a passage in, in the scriptures where Paul does warn. He says to for believers to beware against a certain kind of philosophy that is translated as hollow and deceptive, or is translated as just to give a to, to give just kind of a paraphrase. It's philosophy that is that is anti-Christianity. It, it is anti the, the true gospel. It's anti the things that Jesus really taught. It's based on the the traditions of the world that are in opposition to the teachings of Jesus. And so what Paul says is, is to beware. And as one, as one Christian philosopher said, 
in order to beware something, it's best to first be aware of it because it, it, otherwise, how do we know what we're even looking for? How do we even know what this thing is? And so the scriptures are, are, are clear that while we are to be wise, we are to live in wisdom and to be careful. We're not to live in fear. Um, the only thing that the scriptures really encourage us to fear is the Lord. And even that is a particular kind of fear. It's not, it's not really so much the um, walking around constantly terrified fear. Although sometimes that's not, that's not always a, uh, a horrible idea, um, but that's not the main idea uh, of, that, of that kind of fear. So we're not to be, we're not to be afraid of anything in the world. Um, we are to, to beware things. We are to avoid things that are bad for us and that are bad for those that we care about. Mm -hmm. um, but, but yeah, so we, we are called to beware a certain kind of philosophy, but he, he doesn't just say, stay away from philosophy. That's not what, what he says. He tells okay. us to beware of a particular kind of philosophy. But the scriptures are also clear that, for example, when, it, when they talk about Moses, that Moses was brought up in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. So, so for one thing, the Bible doesn't say that non-believers have no wisdom, that if something is secular, it's, it's automatically bad or it's automatically foolish or, or something like that. It just doesn't teach that because everybody is made in God's image and every culture has aspects of truth and wisdom and knowledge um, just because they're made in God's image. And so we, we can't, um, anything that's human is going to get something right, even if it gets lots of things wrong um, for the most part. So the Bible does refer in positive ways to wisdom that is not even necessarily Christian. Um, but it just, what it warns us against is, is, is traditions and ideas that go against Jesus and go against the teachings of Christ. So just because something is not Christian doesn't mean it's anti-Christian. Those are, those are two different things. And as believers, we, we want to try to we want to try to benefit from everything that's worthwhile in the world. We, we don't want to just say, oh, well, that 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 came from a, an atheist or that came from a Mormon or that came from uh, a Muslim. I mean, what we're called to do is to appropriate good things and, and truths wherever we see them, even though we know as Christians that the, the greatest source, the most complete and comprehensive and reliable source of truth about anything is going to be in, uh, well, about God, at least, is going to be in the scriptures and about Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, but the scriptures do not try to be a textbook on every issue. They, they don't try to be, uh, they don't try to be, a, it doesn't try to be a chemistry textbook or, a, or an anthropology textbook or um, something like that. It tries to give us the best information about the things that are of the greatest importance. So, yes, we are to be aware we're to be we're to beware of certain kinds of philosophy and by the way some some kinds of philosophy uh really are are not something we want to spend our time on there are aspects of 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 thought that frankly are, are would be very unhealthy would be very destructive very unhelpful very pessimistic um, a lot of a lot of philosophy done outside of christ though of course not all of it not nearly all of it but a lot of it uh, is not something we could affirm as Christians. That's absolutely true, but that's also true of a lot of theology. There's plenty of theology that's off too, but that doesn't mean we we throw out all of theology. Right. Um, so we need we need to appropriate what's good wherever we find it. Right. Um, I've heard William Lane Craig say a few times, like, uh, I mean, obviously, when you're just starting out with philosophy and apologetics, you don't start by reading Dawkins or Hitchens or whoever, you know, you start with um, the people that you know are orthodox. Um, 
like Craig or like um, Frank Turek or uh, any of the well-known, like John Lennox, any of those uh, Christian apologists. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is no um, dearth of resources out there. so, and, and, yeah. and by the way, there is, I would say not only to Christians, but even to non-Christians that just to give an analogy, I think if somebody is not a believer and they're considering, um, they're considering different religious beliefs, I think there are good reasons for them to start with Christianity in their, in their pursuit. I think we can actually give reasons for that. And one of the reasons I would say is because we live in a society that while it may be nominally Christian, it may still have uh, a large number of people who believe, for example, that Jesus uh, is their savior or or something like that. The the deepest and most um, influential aspects of our society right now are not only not Christian, but many of them are are, are really anti-Christian. That that's just the the current of our culture. Mm-hmm. So most of us, if we grow up, and this is not to bash, uh, for example, public school or anything like that, but most of us we grow up in an environment that is not only it's not Christian, but it, it just assumes Christianity is not only false, but irrelevant. Mm-hmm. So we, most, most of us have spent decades before we, we really get serious as believers or even become believers. Like I didn't become one until I was 21. So in my case, by, by that time, I had absorbed, I had simply absorbed so much, so many ideas, so many attitudes that, that are so opposed to, to Christ without me even necessarily knowing it because I just picked it up like osmosis. Mm-hmm. So as believers, that's one reason why it is, it is often best to start with Christian philosophers because most of us have only learned to think in contexts that have really nothing to do with Christ. Mm-hmm. And that in many cases, though not all, um, just assume that there's really no truth to Christianity and that it, it really Christianity is kind of a silly uh, myth. But what what would you say wisdom is? Uh, we we've talked about this um, before about how uh, philosophy is um, is the love of wisdom. So how what is wisdom? How do we uh, grow in that? This is such an important question because in our current context, I really think that people tend to not really place enough value on wisdom, and they tend to think everything is about intelligence. And the way the way that we prove our intelligence is by scoring well on standardized tests and and getting into the the best universities and and I'm not saying that's that's altogether wrong. Intelligence I, I think can matter, but I, I think sometimes it's actually over uh, esteemed because sometimes we can know many facts, we, we can have we, we can have read many books, we can do really well on tests, and we can completely fail at life. And this is one reason why. For those who, who do consider getting into philosophy or getting into academia in general, uh, it, it is a very valuable pursuit, and, and we, we do need more Christians who, who uh, take up that calling. But one of the cautions I would really I would really offer to anybody like that is don't just don't don't lose yourself in in academic pursuit, and don't think that getting the, the best grades getting the most accolades, uh, getting the most honors or the most prestigious uh, acceptance into the best schools. Don't think that that, that's everything. Um, As valuable as academic callings are and academic work is, the scriptures would undeniably say that there are other things that are more important. And wisdom would be one of those. 
Now, as we said before, philosophy, especially in its classical sense, was intensely concerned with wisdom. It also did look at abstract issues. It, it did try to study metaphysical issues. There was, there was plenty of that um, and epistemological issues. And, and that's all uh, perfectly legitimate and important and, and in fact vital. But a lot of ancient philosophy had this, this really central focus on questions like, what is a good person? How do I become a good person? Mm-hmm. Um, things that, that today, so many academic philosophers, um, not necessarily dismissing, they might just say, we don't really know the answers, or they might be relativists about those questions. Or some of them, frankly, would be so caught up on, on I think, very narrow research interests that they just won't really have time for those questions. But the way the way that you know my favorite my favorite philosopher was the late Dallas Willard. He passed away uh, in about 20, 2013, I think it was, mm-hmm. and he was br- brilliant in a number a number of areas. He was a brilliant metaphysician. He he was brilliant with epistemology, with logic. He taught a whole range of courses. And I, I don't want to. I'm not trying to denigrate the way that current philosoph- academic philosophy. Uh, functions, the way it focuses on a lot of the very hyper-theoretical, uh, hyper-abstract questions. There is certainly a place for those, but, but Dallas Willard also understood that there were more important questions, um, at least for the, certainly for the everyday person. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're the kind of questions that Jesus himself spent a lot of time on, fleshing out what, what is a good person. So wisdom is different from knowledge Knowledge is really about the accumulation of facts and of data. And knowledge is about, um, a good definition of knowledge is, is, is when you're able to represent something as it is on an appropriate basis of thought and experience. That's a good understanding of knowledge, in my opinion. Uh, it's not one that every philosopher will like or will agree with, um, because again, everything is debated. Right. But wisdom is different because it's not just concerned with with accumulating facts and accumulating data um, and just learning how how things work. Wisdom is more concerned with learning about with understanding for just as an example, there, there are other kinds of questions wisdom would be concerned with. And it's like, what is the most important thing to focus on in life? That would be a question about, that concerns wisdom. That's not just a, a question of what I know or, or of just learning some fact. So in, in the scriptures, it, the book of Proverbs would be considered a book of wisdom literature, and there are others in the Bible as well. And Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. I think some Christians are confused by that statement, and they, they think what it's saying is that only Christians or only people who follow God have any wisdom. Now, we, we know that's not true because as, as scripture says in the New Testament that, that Moses was brought up in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and they were, cert- they were not a, a God-fearing or God-honoring people. So there are examples in the Bible of wisdom that is outside the Bible and that is even outside of God's people. Mm-hmm. But what, what that verse means as I read it is that the wisdom 101 if, you, if we can put it that way, if you want to know the, 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 the first thing that you should know when you're thinking about wisdom, it, it's fearing God. And really what that means, by the way, is, is that I understand that God is bigger than me. He's better than me. He's smarter than me. He knows more than me, especially when it comes to what I should do in life and um, just everything that I need to know to, to navigate my life, my day-to-day 
life. That is what wisdom is concerned with is, is ordinary day-to-day life. Um, there are other things it focuses on too, but it, it, it's an, it's an extremely practical uh, thing to grow in. And it, it really, to put it in a nutshell, wisdom is about living well. It's about living skillfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, the actual Hebrew term that we, we get uh, wisdom from in the Bible, it means skill, living skillfully, basically. That's kind of a, just a way to paraphrase it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just getting good at life itself. That's what wisdom is about. How would you say that we, we grow in wisdom? Yes, and this is an incredibly important question because, again, just to use an analogy from the university setting, the universities these days are concerned with research. That We have what are considered research universities where people will take on a research project and they'll drill down as deeply as they possibly can, like at the doctoral level, for example, and they become an expert on this, this sliver of, of uh, an, a, a like a, a tiny sliver of one area of knowledge mm. um, or study. And there's nothing wrong with that. that, that that's certainly, uh, that's appropriate. But again, to go back to the classical and the biblical approach, it's much more about this general uh, concern for, for living well overall. And, and the answer that not only the scriptures get, gave, but for example, that even Aristotle gave, is that the way to become wiser is to, is to, pick an exemplar, which just means somebody who already clearly has the virtue of wisdom, somebody who's already making good choices in life, who's, who is, um, who's pursuing a flourishing human existence and is really making progress in that. And you, you basically take them and you, you become their disciple. You, you sit under them, you, you're taught by them. And then even in some ways, more importantly, you, you, you literally go with them in their life. You follow them, you observe them, you see how they talk, you see how they think, you see just their, their day-to-day routine. So in the book of Proverbs, it says that uh, those who walk with the wise become wise. Mm-hmm. And, and so wisdom is a very personal, relational kind of thing. It's, it's not just a matter of, again, of accumulating data. It, it's a matter of really taking on somebody in your life and, and mimicking them and imitating them and, and really learning to do what they do. So th- that would be the biggest way that we can grow in it. Of course, there's also a matter of study. I think as Christians, of course, we'd say that the scriptures would be the greatest source of wisdom. Um, and so we want to devote ourselves to regularly, regularly reading and studying and pondering all of the scriptures. And then we also want to, um, we want to find others in the church who really have are, are quite a bit further along than us um, in their development and just just really uh, spend time with them. Uh, a lot of growing in wisdom, it is it is kind of an osmo- osmosis thing where mm-hmm. we it's more in some ways it's more caught than taught. Right. So would you say that faith and reason go together at all or are they uh, or is there a dichotomy there? Definitely in the minds of many non-believers and believers, faith and, re- and reason are seen as, as enemies. Um, I don't know if many, many Christians would, would put it in quite those terms, but many, many, even many Christians would say things like, well, if you give a lot of evidence for something, then you don't need faith or you're taking away the need for faith. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or they'll just, or, and then non-believers will often say things like, 
I can't become a Christian because I can't just take a blind leap into the dark. Um, I, I, you know, I, I can't just believe things that my mind tells me are not true or are not, not plausible. So now that doesn't reflect all non-believers or all believers, but in the history of the church, you do find different movements. Um, I, I think overall you would see that there's a reason and faith are seen as friends. They're seen as being harmonious um, there are some examples, though, in church history of, of reason being disparaged. Martin Luther uh, called reason a whore and, and called it stupid and, and all sorts of things. But, I mean, he was also a, a very brilliant, very flawed person, but very, very bright, clearly. And so he, he clearly used his reason. So I'm not, I'm not entirely sure what, really what even he meant by that. Um, but then you'll find other people like John Wesley who, who extol the, the virtue of reason and how important it is to, to use our, our ability to, to think and to, to use our, our critical faculties and even to um, understand non-Christian thought. Um, so, you, you know, it's just different depending on, on who you look at. But overall, we do, I think we primarily see that reason and faith are friends in church history. And we also see that, I think, in, in the scriptures. The scriptures do call us to have faith. And what that means is, it really just means to trust primarily. It means to, to put our confidence in something or someone. But the scriptures don't call us to do that in the absence of reason or in the absence of knowledge. In the Bible, trusting in God and trusting in, in his plan, it's always done on the basis of, of something that we know. It's on the basis that we know God is real. We know that he's with us. We have reasons, we have evidences to believe in him. Um, so there is, there is no such thing biblically as a, as a leap into the dark. Faith is a, is a step into the, into the light, really. It's a, it's a step of trust based on what we, we have reason to believe is true. Mm -hmm. So now faith, faith is not opposed to reason, but faith does go beyond reason. Because there, there are many aspects just to life. And, and by the way, this is true for everybody. This is true for atheists, for Muslims, for uh, agnostics. This is true. Every human being has to make countless decisions about things that they can never prove or that they cannot know with certainty. Mm -hmm. the, the most important parts of life are things that we cannot know for certain, typically. Mm -hmm. um, any, now, people may say, well, yeah, we can know them for certain, but it's always possible to raise some kind of skeptical challenge. We can always do that. And a lot of times non-believers like to do that, especially if they don't like Christianity, because it's much easier to play a skeptical game. And I'm not saying that they're all playing a game. Many questions are sincere, by the way. Many questions that, that both non-believers and believers have are very sincere, and they should be taken seriously. But sometimes people have already made a, made a choice with their will that they just, they, they don't, they oppose Christianity. They want nothing to do with it. And then sometimes they'll just kind of play a doubting game. And, and it's always easier to, to play the skeptic than it is to, to really stick your neck out and actually put your confidence in something. It's always easier to say, well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? Well, how do you know that? Well, yeah, what's the evidence for that? And again, we should be in the business of giving evidence for things, but um, that's just, that's just a point I wanted to make, but when it comes to faith and reason, God does ask us to go beyond 
what we can perceive and beyond what just what we know. Mm-hmm. But he's not he's not calling us to go against what we know. He's not he's not calling us to do things that are stupid or foolish. He's calling us to do things that might look stupid or foolish if God it what didn't exist or if God wasn't really our shepherd or didn't really watch over us or didn't didn't really have a plan for our lives. In that, in that case, it would be foolish. It's just like the Apostle Paul says that if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied because the central thing we believe didn't really happen. Mm-hmm. So that, that example alone shows that Christianity deeply cares about reality, about truth, and about, about history. Because, again, Paul says if this fact didn't really happen, if this event did not happen, Christians, and I'm paraphrasing again, but Christians might as well pack up and go home and get a different religion or no religion at all. Mm-hmm. So Christianity, you know, a lot, it's funny because I hear people say things like, well, you know, if it works for you or, or we all need to believe something. And the main thing is we just believe it sincerely in our hearts. And that's all that matters. And I, I actually had a guy tell me that just the other day where he says, the main thing is just that we believe something. And, and it's not, not that it's even true. And again, you know, just think about would would people ever say that about, about mathematics or, or about um, science or, or anything like that, they wouldn't. But what I said to him, what I said to him and this guy, he was a, uh, he was a Vietnam vet and we were just kind of, we were having a long conversation about different things. But I said, you know what, the funny thing is when I started looking into Christianity, what struck me is how it about it is how it doesn't agree with that. It doesn't say the main thing is that everyone believes something or just believes strongly in your heart. It does. Christianity uses language that it's almost, it's not cold, but it's, it is incredibly co- concerned with reality and truth and evidence and facts. And so I, that's what I said is that I, I told him about how the apostle Paul said that if, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then Christians are to be pitied. We are pathetic. We might, we'd be better if we just went and, you know, partied it up or something um, because we'd be believing a lie. And so faith and reason on, on the biblical view, they're, they're friends and they're not enemies. Well, Doug, you, you've given us a ton to think about. Um, and you've, I think even given a, a very strong defense of Christianity, even in just discussing exactly what it is that a Christian philosophy is and what apologetics is. So um, in closing today, uh, what exactly are you looking for in a philosophy submission to Solom? What, what makes a, a philosophy paper good? There are a few things that, that go into that. Probably the most important aspect is that it would be clear Clarity is one of the greatest virtues, really with writing in general, but especially writing in philosophy. So if you're writing a philosophical paper that you want to submit to the journal or submit anywhere, one of the most important uh, criteria to use to assess the, how good it is, is, is it clear? Is it something that almost anybody could pick up, even if it's, even if it's difficult, even if it gets into meaty subject matter, as philosophy does, is it at least clear what you're trying to do? Is it clear? Are you making an argument? Are you showing that an argument is flawed? Are you clarifying a concept? Um, what exactly are you trying to do? What is the purpose of the paper? What is the goal of the paper? Um, and so clarity is going to be one of the biggest ones. Also, modesty is really important. And by that, what I mean is 
you want to have a narrow scope, a narrow focus. You don't want to try to tackle every question or, or even some huge question. You usually want to zoom in on one aspect of one question and then just, just devote your paper to, to, to clarifying and analyzing and, and perhaps arguing for or refuting that aspect. Um, so clarity and modesty are important. The topic you pick is also very important. It's important that it would be an actual philosophical topic. Uh, sometimes people who, who maybe aren't, aren't very, haven't been exposed to much philosophy, they, they, they really look at philosophy in, one, in that one of the first senses we mentioned earlier where they think philosophy is just like your take on something or your personal uh, experience um, or maybe even your testimony. I mean, I've seen a lot of different um, confusions about what philosophy is. And I just want to say that philosophy needs to fall under one of the one of the actual disciplines of the field. It needs to be something in metaphysics, needs to be something in epistemology, something in ethics, something in what's called philosophy of religion, uh, something in philosophy of time. Uh, th there are so many subdomains of this discipline, um, and you know, ethics is going to be always going to be a burning uh, a burning subject because especially in our society now questions of justice questions of race um you know things like that that are going to be very pertinent um you know philosophy of gender th these are all going to be very significant things but but these are all going to be actual proper sub-disciplines of philosophy so it's not just philosophy isn't just writing your thoughts on something or your experience um it's actually getting into one of these uh, bona fide disciplines in the field and really getting your hands dirty and, and wrestling with something in a way that's rigorous and shows effort and is clear. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, Doug, um, you know, thanks for coming on. Uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Um, and, you know, just thank you for all you've done for Solom and uh, all you do for me. So yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Uh, Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening and uh, we'll see you later.